The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord Christ, thou Prince of Peace, the faithful and true, grant to us all, we beseech thee, that putting on the whole armor of God, we may follow thee as thou goest forth, conquering and to conquer, and fighting manfully under thy banner against sin, the world and the devil may be found more than conquerors, and at the last may be refreshed with a multitude of peace in the holy city of our God, whose is the greatness and the power the victory and the majesty, world without end. Amen. We are in Matthew chapter 16 today. We took a break for Thanksgiving, so we come back to a very significant section of Matthew's gospel. I would go so far as to say a very significant section of the New Testament. I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that one commentator said that while all men are created equal, some are equaler than others. And there is a sense in which that is true of the Bible as well. All parts of the Bible, we believe, are God-breathed, and all parts of the Bible are profitable for us, for our growth and our knowledge and love of the Lord. But there are some sections of the Scripture that we have to admit simply contain information or revelation that is more significant than other sections. I think Matthew chapter 16 falls into that category. And so we want to take a close look at this section. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 16. And let's go ahead and at least read through the first 12 verses. We may get to verses 13 through 20, but I wouldn't count on it. So let's go ahead and read. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We said that there has been a shift that has been taking place in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm not quite sure what happened to my slides. There we go. We said that there's been a shift in the Gospel of Matthew. It was a shift that began in the 13th chapter. Uh, Jesus has been facing increasing hostility from the Jewish religious leaders, from the scribes and the Pharisees in particular, and also he had run afoul of King Herod. 
Not only that, but because of the signs and the wonders that Jesus had been performing, many of the people wanted to forcibly make him a king. And so we'd seen that Jesus had withdrawn from the crowds. He felt it necessary to sort of let things cool down for a time. And he had withdrawn, we said, to the northwest up to an area that no self-respecting Jew would have entered, entered, ever entered. He went into the area of Tyre and Sidon. This was overtly Gentile territory. We commented that this was the only time over the course of his entire three-year ministry that Jesus ever left Jewish territory and spent any considerable amount of time among the Gentiles. Now, that's not to say that he didn't encounter Gentiles. Actually, when he came back from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he did go to the area of the Decapolis. That was ten cities on the uh, eastern bank of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus, for the most part, didn't spend a great deal of time among the Gentiles. He had come first and foremost for the Jews. But on this occasion, he had withdrawn to the region of the Gentiles in order to escape all of this pressure and all the expectations that people were putting on him. Not only that, but we begin to notice that Jesus begins to teach in a slightly different way. Because of the increasing hostility on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees, and because of the indifference for the large measure on the part of the crowds. They were very impressed with his miracles. They were very impressed with the fact that Jesus could heal people. They loved the fact that he could feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. But they were not prepared to commit to him. And so we're told that Jesus began to shift his focus. He began to focus almost exclusively on the disciples. Now, he continued to teach the people, but he began to teach them no longer in the kind of long sermons that you find in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in this gospel, but instead Jesus begins to teach them in parables. And the gospel writer tells us that he did this, that they might ever be hearing but never understanding. In other words, so that the spiritually minded people could hear the message and understand it, and those who were indifferent, well, they could have nothing to bring against him. So we saw that shift in Jesus' pattern. He began to teach in parables, and as I said, he also began to focus almost exclusively on the disciples. All of the in-depth teaching is taking place in a private setting, no longer to the large crowds, and it's almost always to the disciples. Well, chapter 16, where we are today, is the culmination of that shift. Some might go so far as to say this 16th chapter of Matthew is the high point of Matthew's narrative. Not only up to this point, but some might even say the high point of this narrative period. Now you say, well, isn't the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus the high point of the narrative? Well, it is, but what we're going to see is that that is already foreshadowed here in this 16th chapter. There are a number of very important events that happen in just this one section of the gospel. For example, we find Peter's great confession of Jesus Christ. Others had recognized Jesus. We talked about the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman up there in Tyre and Sidon. She recognized who Jesus was, but you recall the disciples had not yet recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of David, even though she had. Well, it's here in the 16th chapter that all of a sudden the light bulb goes on for Peter and James and John and Andrew and all the rest. They begin to understand who Jesus really is. Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's significant in this 16th chapter. Something else is significant. They not only begin to understand who Jesus is, they begin to understand what Jesus Christ came to do. 
Because as soon as Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, what does the Lord do? He proceeds to tell him what it means to be the Messiah, what the Messiah had come to do, namely that he was going to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed at the hands of his own people, crucified, and on the third day rise again. Now what's that all about? Well, that's about not only the person, but the work of Jesus Christ. So the person of Jesus Christ, who he really is, his true identity, his work, what he had came, come to earth to do, that is revealed here in the 16th chapter. Something else that is revealed in the 16th chapter is that we have the first mention of the church. Paul describes the church as that sacred mystery that had been concealed from the beginning of time and has now been revealed to those who are initiated into the gospel life. Now, we understand the church to be very important. It is God's instrument for reconciling the world unto Himself. God was going to hand off the work of Jesus Christ, the reconciling work of the gospel, to the members of the church. This is the first reference that we have to the church, the new Israel, if you will, here in this gospel. So that's significant. And the fourth thing is this. Jesus begins to teach His disciples about what it means. Once you understand who He is, once you recognize what He has come to do, once you embrace Him and therefore enter His fellowship, the church, then Jesus begins to talk about what that looks like in your life as an individual. He said, anyone who would seek to follow me must first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. If you think about it, right here in this 16th chapter, in those four things, you have the story of the Christian life in a nutshell, don't you? In order to be a Christian, there are a number of things that you need to understand. You need to understand who Jesus is, and we're going to get to this next week probably. You need to understand who Jesus is. You need to understand what He came to do. You need to simply not understand that intellectually. You have to make a commitment to Him with your heart and thereby enter His fellowship, the church. And then you need to do what with your life? Follow Him as your Lord. So really, the whole story of Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, is here in just this one chapter of Matthew's Gospel, this one chapter of the New Testament. So you can take just this one chapter, and you can begin to preach the Gospel just from this. So I say this 16th chapter is really significant. It contains fundamental teaching as to the Christian life. Now, before Jesus gets to the teaching... We need to understand that it was all precipitated by an encounter that he had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The text begins, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Uh, Jesus, as I said, was returning from the region of Tyre and Sidon. When he came back, he went to the area of the Decapolis, but you get this sense as you read through the Gospel of Matthew that there had been a great deal of conversation about Jesus even in his absence. Rumors were flying all around and you almost have the impression that when Jesus returns to Galilee that there is this group that is waiting for him. This official delegation. And I think that's really what we have here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were an odd combination. Now, up to this point, we've heard a great deal about the scribes and the Pharisees. They worked in league with each other, but we haven't heard a whole lot about the Sadducees. And the reason for that is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, generally speaking, were like oil and water. They had nothing to do with each other. They hated each other. 
Well, I say this is an official delegation because the Sanhedrin, the highest body of authority within Judaism, what we would call the high court, contained both of these groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this is probably an official delegation. As I said, Jesus had withdrawn, but the people were suggesting that perhaps he was the king. Others knew that he was a great miracle worker, and the word had made its way down to Jerusalem and they said perhaps this is a great prophet, perhaps this is a great teacher and this official delegation is sent up to Galilee waiting for him to return and to pose a question to him. The question that we have before us today. Now who were the Pharisees? Well we've already talked about the Pharisees in here. The Pharisees of course were the leaders of the law. They were the experts in the law. Their very name said it all. The word Pharisee means separated ones. So the Pharisees were those who separated themselves out from the culture and separated themselves unto the law. Now, we look back with the advantage of hindsight 2,000 years after the fact, and we see the Pharisees because they were always plotting against Jesus as the great villains of the New Testament. But you need to understand that in Jesus' own day, the Pharisees were the most highly regarded group within Jewish society. They were what we would call the conservatives of the day, religiously speaking. They took seriously the word of the law. Now, sometimes they took that so seriously that they became legalistic. They had a a sad preoccupation with every jot and tittle, and sometimes they would add to the law. We saw that. But to their credit, they were a righteous people, or at least they were striving to be a righteous people. What about the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were just the opposite. (laughs) The Sadducees were descendants of the priestly class, but they were what we would call modernists today. They didn't believe in a whole lot of anything. Uh, For example, the Pharisees believed in such things as the afterlife, and the resurrection of the body. But the Sadducees did not. They denied all of that. The Sadducees only accepted the first few books of the Bible to begin with, whereas the Pharisees accepted the whole of the Old Testament plus all of the interpretations, the commentaries on the Old Testament text. So normally these two didn't have anything to do with each other. And to make matters worse, the Pharisees absolutely despised the Romans because they saw the Romans as this pagan polytheistic power that was corrupting the religion of Judaism. And the Sadducees, on the other hand, were collaborationists. They collaborated with whatever power was in force at that time. And at this point in history, of course, it was the Romans. So the Sadducees cooperated with the Romans in order to maintain a position of power and influence. So you say to yourself, well, why in the world would the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus? All right, an official delegation has been sent, but they come asking the same question. The answer is very simple. My enemy's enemy is my friend. Politics and war make strange bedfellows, don't they? And that was the case. As much as the Pharisees and the Sadducees felt threatened by each other, they felt an even greater threat from Jesus Christ. And so they came to Jesus Christ with this question. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, Matthew gives us some insight as to their motivation. When these men came to Jesus, they were not coming because they were really seeking knowledge. They weren't coming to Jesus and saying, you know, we're struggling, we're not sure who you are. 
Can you give us some sort of evidence so that we can have an idea as to who you are so we can go back to those who sent us in Jerusalem and make an official report? The text says that they came to him to do what? To test him. The only reason that they were coming to Jesus is because they wanted to put him to the test, the kind of test by which they could discredit him in the eyes of the people. That's what they were really hoping for. Now, when you think about it, it takes a lot of courage. Courage is probably not the best word. Foolhardiness to ask Jesus, after everything that he's already done, for another sign. I mean, what more could he possibly offer to the people? This is one of the reasons why I've said that Thomas got upbraided by Jesus after the resurrection. We all know about doubting Thomas, don't we? When Jesus first appeared to the disciples following that first Easter, Thomas wasn't with them. And when Jesus appeared a week later, Thomas was with them. But in the intervening days, the disciples kept talking about having seen Jesus and he was back from the dead. And Thomas had refused to believe it. He said, I'm, I'm not going to buy into this unless I can see with my own eyes, unless I can probe his wounds with my own hands and my own fingers, I'm not going to believe this. I, I watched them take his body down from the cross and I know what death looks like and I'm not going to buy into this. And you'll remember that when Jesus did appear a week later and Thomas was with him, he called Thomas over and made him examine the wounds. Here, take your finger, put it in the nail prints. Take your hand, put it into my side. And Thomas fell at the Lord's feet and made that tremendous confession, one of the greatest confessions that you find anywhere in the New Testament, my Lord and my God. He confesses Christ's deity. But what does Jesus say to him in response? He said, you believe because you've seen. <laughs> Blessed are those who have not seen yet still believe. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Was, was Jesus upbraiding Thomas because Thomas required evidence in order to believe? No. That, that was not the problem for Thomas. One of the things we have to remember about the Christian faith is that it is an historical faith. It is open to investigation. It's subject to investigation. We're encouraged to do that. That's one of the reasons why Jesus said, come here, examine. Put your finger in the nail prints. Put your hand in the side. It's not that Jesus is opposed to people asking for evidence. The problem for Thomas was that he'd already been given ample evidence. I mean, think about where Thomas had been over the course of the previous three years. He had seen things the likes of which no one else had ever seen. He'd seen Jesus walk on the water, calm the waves. He'd seen Jesus cleanse lepers, feed the 5,000. He'd seen Jesus raise people, at least three people that we know of, from the dead. He'd been privy to all of these things. And over the course of those previous three years, Jesus had made it very clear over and over again that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to die, and on the third day rise again. Now, in, in, the, in the wake of everything that he had just done, wouldn't you take him at his word? And Thomas comes along and says, it's not enough. I need something more. And that's what Jesus was upset about. How much evidence is enough? So as I said, it takes a great deal of courage, foolhardiness really, for these men, the scribes and the Pharisees, in the wake of everything that Jesus has done up to the 16th chapter, to come and say, we want a sign. 
You can almost hear them asking it in a sneering way. Give us a sign. One more sign. All we're asking for is one more sign. Well, would that one more sign be enough? See, it was not a genuine concern for knowledge. This was simply an attempt to get at Jesus. And if Jesus even had given them a sign, something from heaven, something dramatic, calling down fire from heaven, whatever it may be, it still would not have been enough for them to believe. I've said to you before, if you are convinced that miracles do not happen, my friends, even if you were to witness one, you would not believe it. You might scratch your head, but you'd still say, because you're already convinced that this is a materialist world and there is nothing else beyond this, you would still say to yourself, I don't know what the explanation is, but there has to be a natural explanation. And that was the case for the scribes and the Pharisees. As I said, this was not a question of doubt. Doubt is part and parcel of the human existence. This is willful unbelief on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees. What was the Lord's response? Well, here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. I said sometimes it is helpful to read the parallel accounts. Mark tells the same story. But in Mark's version of the story, there is one little feature that is added that I think is very important. When Jesus heard them ask for a sign, Mark says he sighed deeply. Ugh. Have you ever felt like that? Ever dealt with people that just make you sigh deeply? <laughs> That's what Jesus did when he heard this. He sighed deeply because he recognized that no matter what he did, he re they would refuse to believe. And that's why he goes on to speak about the signs of the time, and in particular, the weather. It's Jesus' way of saying, how much longer do I have to be with you? What, what in the world would possibly persuade you? You, you are intelligent people. That's what Jesus was saying to the scribes and the Pharisees. You are intelligent people. You're not fools. You know how to read the, 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 the weather. We have a phrase like this. Red at night, sailors delight. Red in the morning, sailors take warning. This is what Jesus was saying. You, you people know how to read the weather. And yet you can't read what I have been doing. You can't understand what I have accomplished. You can't see that I can take five loaves of bread, two fish, and feed 5,000 people, that I can speak the word and lepers are cleansed, the blind receive their sight, the lame leap for joy. You can read the weather, but you cannot read the signs of the times. It's an adulterous generation that asks for another sign. You really think to yourself, those scribes and the Pharisees, they were really dumb, weren't they? There was a movie that came out some years ago entitled Dumb and Dumber. Well, they may have been dumb, but we shouldn't think that we're any better. We're intelligent people too, aren't we? We live in an advanced age. The science and technology, the accomplishments, 
Just think about your cell phones for a moment. Do you realize that you have more technology in your smartphone than NASA had when it put a man on the moon? We've come a long way, ladies and gentlemen, and we can read the weather as well, can't we? Sometimes that's the only good news that comes on the news at night, is the weather report. Even if it's wrong, it's sometimes better than the news that they're putting out. Think about it, when Hurricane Dorian was coming up the coast this past summer, my goodness, we knew it was coming. We had charts and models, spaghetti models, and the European model, and everything else. We could read the signs, and Jesus says we cannot read the signs of the times. We cannot realize that we're living in the age of grace. We cannot realize that Jesus Christ has already come, paid the price for our sin, been resurrected, and is calling us to live a life of holiness. And we keep saying, I want more, more, more. If you think about it, we're really no better than the scribes and the Pharisees, are we? People still refuse to believe. And it's no wonder that Jesus sighs deeply. What does he say? He says, no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah. Now, we've already talked about the sign of Jonah because it's already been mentioned here in the Gospel of Matthew where you know the story of Jonah and the fish. Jonah had been called by God to go and preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. He didn't like the people of Nineveh. It's like asking Charlestonians to go down and preach to the people of Savannah. Well, we don't like the people in Savannah. We don't want to go down there and preach to the people in Savannah. We're not going to do that. And Jonah decides to go in a new direction. And, of course, there are consequences when we disobey God. And what happened to Jonah, of course, he got on a ship going in the opposite direction. A storm came. They threw him overboard, and he swallowed by this great fish. And he lives for three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish until finally he repents in that miserable place. And the fish, the story goes, spits him out, and it spits him out on dry land. And guess where he is? Nineveh. If you think about it, if he just obeyed the first time, it could have avoided all of that. But Jesus uses that image of Jonah as an illustration of what's going to happen to him, just as Jonah was for three nights and three days in the belly of the fish and then came back out of the fish. So Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, buried. But on the third day, he too will come forth. So Jesus said, if you're looking for a sign, the only sign that you need is the sign of Jonah. Now for Christians, the sign of Jonah is a blessing. But when Jesus spoke it this way to the scribes and the Pharisees, he was speaking it not as a blessing, but as a judgment. In other words, if somebody were to come back from the dead, would you believe? Well, he did come back from the dead, and the scribes and the Pharisees still refused to believe. And so the resurrection of the Son of Man was not a blessing for them, it was a curse. And my friends, as much as I hate to say it, it is a curse for everyone who fails to take a good hard look at the evidence for Jesus Christ, what He came to do, the resurrection, and then having come to the conclusion that He is who He claims to be, nevertheless refuses to believe because they don't want to change. Because the Christian life does necessitate, it does demand a change. Jesus Christ doesn't want part of you. Jesus Christ wants all of you. As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago on Christ the King Sunday, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, Jesus Christ is not Lord at all. And that's what the Lord was saying to him. Look at verse 4. 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And look at how that verse in this section ends. And so he left them and departed. If you think about it, there's an ominous tone to it, isn't there? He spoke the truth to them, they refused to believe, and so he did what? He departed. He left them. Left them in their unbelief, not their doubt, their unbelief, and left them to their own fate. Well, we pick up at verse 5. We're told that he left them. Apparently, he got into a boat and he begins to cross the Sea of Galilee. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? The scribes and the Pharisees, I can hear Jesus saying it, or at least thinking it, The scribes and the Pharisees were dumb. You guys are dumber. (laughs) Beware of the leaven and the Sadducees, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12. Oh! Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's pretty clear when you read through this section. What Jesus is thinking about as he gets into the boat. Having just had this encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus gets into the boat. They've got to get away from these people who are always badgering him, always looking to somehow bring him out, always trying to distract him from the work that he'd come to earth to do. So they get into the boat. They're going to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus is still pondering all of this. He's deeply disturbed by this whole conversation that he's just had with the scribes and the Pharisees. So as they're making their way across the Sea of Galilee, he turns to his disciples and he said, guys, let me just give you a little bit of advice. Beware of these people. Be- beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. Beware of the yeast of these men. Now that's what Jesus is thinking about. That's what the disciples should have been thinking about. But what are they thinking about? They're thinking about food. They're thinking to themselves, we didn't get any breakfast. And we're not going to get any lunch. And, and he's talking about yeast. And Peter, I told you, you better bring some bread. And you didn't bring anything. Now we don't have anything. And now he wants to know where the bread is. And they're going back and forth with each other, blaming each other for the fact that they didn't bring bread. And they don't have any clue whatsoever as to what Jesus is talking about. Yeah, the scribes and the Pharisees were dumb, but I'm telling you, the disciples were even dumber, really. And that's when Jesus says to them, oh, you fellows. If he sighed deeply when he was dealing with those religious leaders, he must have really sighed deeply when he was dealing with these men. He said, how is it that you fail to understand that I'm not speaking about bread? And why are you worried about it anyway? I mean, for Pete's sakes, I've just taken five loaves of bread, two small fish, and fed 5,000. 
I fed 4,000 people with bread. Why are you worried about lunch? You don't think I can take care of you? I can take care of you. I'm talking about eternal things. You're concerned about earthly things. You're concerned about feeding your bellies, but your souls are in danger of starving to death. That's what Jesus was saying to these men. He said, don't be fixed on the things of this earth. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees are concerned with. You need to fix your eyes on those things that are above. Fix your eyes on those things that are eternal. That's what really matters in this life. What does it profit a man, Jesus says on another occasion, if he gains the whole world? Fame, fortune, power, influence. But then comes to the end of his life and realizes that how much is he going to leave behind? All of it. And he's taken no care whatsoever for his soul, which is the only thing that will go on. That's what Jesus was saying to these disciples. And then they understood at last that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and what is the leaven of the Sadducees? Well, certainly, part of it has to be their unbelief, their, their skepticism, their willful refusal to believe all that Christ had done. And there are people like that in the world today. I, I think about people like Richard Dawkins, the renowned atheist. I mean, Richard Dawkins is, is a strange duck for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which is that he is what I would call a rabid atheist. Now, if you really believe that no God exists, that we're here as the result of some sort of random accident, and life has no purpose, ultimately. You live, you die, end of story. And there's no locus of morality, there's no idea of right and wrong, and, and, and what you're doing is just trying to get by. I mean, it's all about the survival of the fittest. If that's really what you believe, why do you care if somebody else believes in God? I mean, if that helps them get through life, I mean, if this life is really all there is, you, you live and you die and you become fodder for the worms, if that's really all it is, what do you care if people believe in God? See, there's something else going on beneath the surface with somebody like Richard Dawkins. There's, there's a reason why there's not just an indifference. Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist at the same time as C.S. Lewis at Oxford University, but Bertrand Russell, while he was a great skeptic and he liked to take pot shots at religious people, he was not an angry atheist. Because what was there to be angry about if you don't believe in anything? What's going on behind Richard Dawkins? You see, there's something more to it there. That's right. That's one thing we all have as a conscience, don't we? And it has a tendency to prick us from time to time. Paul talked about this. When he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? And I think with people like that, they are kicking against the goads. What's the use of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Certainly their skepticism, certainly their willful unbelief, but I think there are two other things going on here. The Pharisees, as we know, were religious people. They took the Bible seriously, but they had a tendency to add to it. They had all kinds of laws and regulations. Jesus said they had a tendency to tie up heavy burdens on other men's backs, burdens that were too heavy for them themselves to carry, let alone for other people. And he said, furthermore, you don't even lift a finger to help other people. 
When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan and talked about the priest and the Levite who came up the road and saw the wounded man on the side of the road and passed to the other side so they would not be ritually unclean, those were the Pharisees. They were the ones that always want to add something to. Oh, yes, you're saved by grace, but the minute you hear those words, but, you're in trouble. The minute that you want to add anything to the doctrine of God's grace, that you're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no man may boast. But that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to add, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the kosher rules. You have to wash your hands ritually before you eat your meal. You do all of the things that we tell you to do, and then you will be saved. Then you'll be acceptable to God. That's the yeast of the Pharisees. It's legalism, my friends. Legalism. Don't drink, don't smoke, and don't date girls who do. <laughs> yeast of the Pharisees, right there. What's the yeast of the Sadducees? Well, if the yeast of the Pharisees was to add to the Scriptures, the yeast of the Sadducees was to take away from the Scriptures. You don't have to believe this. It's not the Word of God. We live in an enlightened age. My goodness, nobody's going to read, live under a document that was written thousands of years ago. Yes, there are some parts in here that might have some insight. There may be a God up there in the universe, but if he's up there in the universe, he's like a great clockmaker. He winds things up, but he doesn't intercede in the life of men and women. They take away. And one of the things that I find fascinating about Jesus is that he didn't get along with the Pharisees and he didn't get along with the Sadducees. He didn't get along with the fundamentalists and he didn't get along with the liberals. And that's what Jesus was telling the disciples. Watch out for those who always want to add and watch out for those who always want to take away from what God has already said. Read the signs of the times, he says, and understand what God is doing, what he's doing in the person of his son. That was the problem for the disciples they simply didn't have any thought for eternity. Listen, folks, the only gospel that will do us any good is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll never be able to do enough, no matter what the Pharisees tell you, you'll never be able to do enough to earn your way into the kingdom of God. People will always be putting something on your back. Somebody's always going to be packing your bags for the next guilt trip but you will never be able to do enough to earn God's favor. That's why Jesus Christ came into the world, to do the work for you, a work that you receive by faith. Did you ever notice in the liturgy we say, there on the cross he offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Now just listen to that. If you think about it, it's redundant. A full, perfect, sufficient, sacrifice, ablation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Now, if you listen to those words, you have to say to yourself, what more can be added to that? What the liturgy is saying is there's nothing. Everything that was necessary in order to save you, to translate you from this life which is broken and fallen, this life in which you will perish, to that life which is eternal. Everything that is necessary in order to be done has already been done by Jesus Christ. 
You receive that by faith, by recognizing the fact that you have nothing to bring. The old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. On the other hand, this is the word of the Lord and you can't take anything away from it. In other words, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, what? But by me. The Sadducees, the Pharisees want to say, that's not enough. You've got to do this, this, and this. The Sadducees say, it's too much. How can you say that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life? What about the Buddhist? Or the Hindu? Or, or the Muslim? We, we want to take away from the idea that Jesus claims to be the unique Son of God, don't we? Both groups found Jesus offensive. The Pharisees, because Jesus says, I've done it all. There's nothing more that needs to be done. You receive it by faith. The Sadducees, because he claimed to do as much as he did. Do you think there are people today that are offended by the gospel? Offended by Jesus Christ for precisely the same reason? You better believe there are. I know many people who say, I just cannot believe that God will only provide one way in order to get to heaven. Have you ever heard people say that? I just can't believe in a God that would provide one way in order to get to heaven. Well, let me ask you this question. Why does God have to provide any way? What does the scripture say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that word all mean? It means all without exception, doesn't it? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. So, how many sinners do we have out there? What's the wages for your sin? Death. Now you say to yourself, well, yes, but I'm not as big a sinner as that person sitting across the table from me today. They're a whole lot worse than I am. So how sinful do you need to be in order for the wages to be death? That's a good question if you think about it. You know, we're hoping God grades on the curve. So, you know, how do we know? Some years ago, um, there was botulism that was found in uh, a can of a batch of vichyssoise soup that was on the grocery store counter, grocery store sacks. Now, if you know anything about botulism, you know that it's deadly. How much botulism needs to be in one can of soup in order for it to be deadly? Large amount, small amount, how much? Any amount. It's like asking the question, how rotten is rotten meat? How, how rotten does it have to be before you won't eat it? That's the way it is with sin, my friends. Any amount is deadly. Whether it's a large amount or a small amount, it's like that botulism in that can of soup. It may only be a small amount, but the problem is that it is deadly. And Jesus Christ came to be the cure for your sin and for mine. And the world is offended by that. The Pharisees say he didn't do enough. The Sadducees said he did too much. And Jesus says, beware of that. Read the signs of the times. Realize that we are now today living under the reign of God's grace. And he has not yet, has not yet, departed from us in the way that he departed from them.
Let me just sort of wrap this up by asking the question, are you reading the signs of the times? What do the signs of our times teach us? Well, they teach us that you and I are living in the time of salvation. When Jesus talks about reading the signs of the time, he's not talking about world events. He's not talking about politics. He's not talking about economics. That's one of the things I've tried to teach people as we've been going through the book of Revelation. Everybody wants to interpret Revelation in their own time. What Revelation is speaking is not just to a specific time, it's speaking to all times and in all places. It's revealing a truth that applies to all people everywhere. It's not a matter of reading world events, it's not a matter of politics, it's not a matter of economics, it's just a spiritual matter. What Jesus is basically saying is, look, I came to rescue you from this evil age. That's what Paul says in Galatians, he said, at just the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to rescue those under the law. At just the right time, God acted in history. That's what this season of Advent and Christmas is really all about. At just the right time, God acted in history. Do you realize that God has acted to save you? That's the first thing Jesus is saying. Second thing Jesus is saying is, now is the time, therefore, to respond. That's what he was saying to the scribes and the Pharisees. Here I am doing these signs and wonders. Can't you see what it is? Why not embrace me now? Because when I depart, it will be too late. Now is the time of God's favor. If you've still got breath in your body, if you're still walking around today, folks, if Christ has not yet returned in glory and majesty, there is still time for you to turn to him and receive his message of free salvation. But here's the third thing that this whole section teaches us, that if we fail to do that, if we fail to act now in this day of grace, understand, just as we read the signs of the weather, so a storm is coming, a judgment will arrive, and the time is short. Jesus' point to the scribes, to the to the crowds, to the disciples, Jesus' point to us today is now is the time. Now is the time to embrace his free gift and to follow hard after him. Well, when Jesus spoke to the disciples in such a way as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, obviously something broke loose for them. Because this next section has Peter making this tremendous confession of Jesus Christ. And we've only got 10 minutes, but let's just go ahead and take a look at it. Chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's important that we understand what Christianity is, my friends, but it's just as important that we understand what Christianity is not. I've talked about this before, but I'm going to come back to it again and again because it is so vital. If you walk down the street today in Charleston, 
and you ask people to give you a definition of Christianity, because we're living in a post-Christian age, because many young people in particular have never been raised in the church, you realize that this is the first generation in the nation's history that are largely unchurched. The millennials, the majority of them, have never even been to church. So one of the things that we've got to think about in terms of evangelism is how do you reach not just an unbelieving, but an unchurched culture. They've never even heard the gospel. One of the things we've got to realize, we can't speak the same language. We can't talk ecclesial language. Because many times they don't understand what that is. So if you were to walk down the streets of Charleston and ask somebody, what is Christianity? What kind of answers do you think you'd get? Well, one answer you might get is that Christianity is a creed. Now, what do we mean by a creed? Well, we mean a statement of belief. Every Sunday we stand up and we profess our faith in the words of the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, don't we? And we say that we believe certain things. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life eternal. Those are what we believe. And somebody might say, to be a Christian means that you can stand up and subscribe to a set of beliefs without crossing your fingers. But I'm here to tell you today, it is possible for you to stand up and recite the words of the creed without any mental reservation and still miss the heart of Christianity. You know that? So somebody else might say, well, if Christianity is not a creed, then Christianity must be a code of conduct. Well, there's no denying the fact that Christianity has a code of conduct. In fact, it has the highest code of conduct, the code of love. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And love your neighbor how? As yourself. And who's my neighbor? Everybody. Somebody said, that's what it means to be a Christian, to follow a, a particular code of conduct. Well, there's no denying the fact that Christianity, as I said, has a code of conduct. But do you know that it's possible to live a moral life and still miss the heart of Christianity? There are moral atheists in the world today. I had a lady in my last parish whose son-in-law was Jewish. And she came up to me one day and she said, You know, he's Jewish, but he's the best Christian that I know. <laughs> what she meant by that was that he was a good fellow. He was a moral fellow. He's an ethical fellow, better than many of the Christians that she knew. So it's possible to have a code of conduct and still miss the heart of Christianity. Others might say, well, then if Christianity is not a code of conduct, if it's not a creed, then Christianity is probably a cult. And when I use the word cult, I mean this in the old sense, a collection of religious ceremonies. It's people who attend church on a, on a regular basis. And if you think about it, we Anglicans have a service for everything, don't we? I mean, we, we've got that down pat. We've got morning prayer and evening prayer and noonday prayer, and we've got morning prayer right one. Morning prayer, right two. We got Holy Eucharist, right one. Holy Eucharist, right two. We've got year A, B, C of the lectionary. We, we got it all. But do you know it's possible to show up for church on Sunday, say the prayers on your knees, and still miss the heart of Christianity? Many people do it their whole lives. They've been through all the rites and ceremonies of the church. They were baptized. They were confirmed. The hands of a bishop in succession, all of those things, and yet they miss the heart of Christianity. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is possible to have all of those three things, to believe all the right things, to act the right way, and to attend worship on Sunday and still, listen to this, miss the heart of Christianity. And I'll give you an example of somebody who did it. It was John Wesley. 
Now, you all know the story of John Wesley. He's the founder of Methodism. He was a priest in the Church of England. Wesley was raised in a religious home. His father was a vicar in the Church of England, so he was raised in the rectory or the vicarage. His mother was a well-known spiritual guide, sought out in a day when women were not often sought out for that sort of thing, uh, but she was sought out for her wisdom and so forth. Wesley went off to Oxford University and founded an organization called the Holy Club. I've told you before, of all the clubs I would have joined in college, that would not have been the one that I would have subscribed to. The Holy Club. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But he founded the Holy Club. He memorized the entire Psalter. All the Psalms, verbatim. So he believed all the right things. He believed the creed. He was a moral person. He reached out to the down and outers, worked in London, in the slums, to help those who were in need. And furthermore, he was faithful in his church attendance, went to church every single morning that he was at Oxford University, every noonday when he was at Oxford University, and every night when he was at Oxford University. And when he graduated, he felt that God was calling him to convert the heathen, and so he was ordained by the Bishop of Oxford and sent to Savannah, Georgia to do it. And he was an absolute failure. No matter what he tried, he was a catastrophe in the parish. In fact, he was in such a bad place that he fled from Savannah. He got sued for libel. He fled Savannah and he came here to Phillips. And the rector took him in and cared for him. And then they put him on a boat and sent him back to England. And while he was on his way back to England, he encountered a group of Moravian Christians. And they were really impressed by this fellow that knew Greek and Hebrew and Latin. This Oxford Don, this intelligent man, knew all these things. But they noticed there was something missing in his life. He had all of the head knowledge, but somehow his heart was not warm to the things of God. And one of the Moravians said to him that they thought that he knew a great deal about God, but here was his problem. They didn't think he knew God. And Wesley was really irritated by that. But it stuck in his crawl. He, he recognized there, there was something missing in his life. And the more he thought about this, the more dejected he became. And one day he was wandering through the Aldersgate section of London, really feeling as though he had just made a mess of his life. And he saw a little Moravian chapel. And he remembered those Moravians that he encountered on the boat. And he went into that little Moravian chapel in London. And he heard the preacher reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the Romans of how you're saved by grace, not by works. And he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And all of a sudden he said, I understood that it was not about knowing about God. It was about knowing God. God personally. And he would go out and from that day on he would transform the world. Many historians are convinced the only reason that England did not go through the reign of terror that took place during the French Revolution was because of the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield. Now what is interesting, just to add a little addendum to the story, his brother Charles was also a priest in the Church of England. He was a struggling musician but he was a lot like his brother. He was pretty legalistic. But he had a similar experience, a similar warming of the heart two weeks before his brother. It was probably instrumental in bringing his brother to that point. We all remember John Wesley as the founder of Methodism, but Charles Wesley was the great hymn writer. 
Do you know that prior to his conversion, he never wrote a single hymn? Wrote them, but never got them published. After his conversion, after his strange warming of the heart, he wrote some of the greatest hymns in all of history, 6,500 of them, 6,500. Among them, oh, 4,000 tongues to sing. Hark, the herald angels sing in my favorite, and can it be, which has this line in it, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Listen, folks, it's not enough to know about God. You have to know God. Christianity contains a creed, a code of conduct, and a cult, but at its heart, Christianity is a person. You know, you could take Moses out of Israel or out of Judaism, and you'll still have Judaism. Moses was simply a conduit. You can take Muhammad out of Islam, and you'll, you'll still have the religion. But if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. John Stott said it's like a, a frame without a picture. It's like a casket without a jewel. It's like a body without breath. I, I'm not interested in whether or not you can answer all the Sunday school questions. The real question is this, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have a personal relationship? I'm not asking if you know about him. I'm asking, do you know him personally? Because he's a living Lord. It's like somebody saying, do you know the Queen of England? I've watched the crown. I know a great deal about her. But if somebody says, but do you know her? No, I've never met her. And there are many people like that when it comes to Jesus Christ. They know about him, but they've never met him. So you need to understand that Christianity is more than just knowing. It is about knowing him personally. And that's what Peter comes to understand here in this 16th chapter. I hear the bells going. So if you want to know more about that, and if you're wondering, do I actually have that personal relationship with him, you have to come back next week. But if you're really worried about it, you're really uncertain, don't wait until next week. I'm here. I'm available. Any of the clergy are available. It would be our great pleasure to introduce you to the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We thank you that it is packed full of so much. We even thank you for this encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees because it became an opportunity for Jesus to share the good news. Grant us the grace, Lord, to read the signs of our own times. We who are so wonderful at reading the cloud density and the rainfall and storms brewing in the Atlantic sometimes fail to realize the times in which we live. We are living in the reign of grace and that now is the day of salvation. Grant us the grace, Lord, if we've never done so, to come to Jesus Christ, to confess our sins, to acknowledge that we're not perfect and to ask for His mercy and forgiveness, to ask that He might come in and take His rightful place as the sovereign of our lives to sit as King on the throne of our hearts. Grant this, we pray, not just for Jesus' sake, but for ours. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.